Welcome to Wetwired. This is episode 13, David Barton and the Myth of a Christian America. I'm Sean Andes. And I'm Julian Paul Butt. In premium episode number six, we talked about some of the Christian preachers who overtly tie together biblical prophecy and the ultimate destiny of the United States. We also brought up the wild variety of other religious influences coming out of Mormonism, Judaism, and New Age thought that are often woven into Christian nationalist narratives. In our second episode of our Fash Boy Summer miniseries, we're talking about the central binding myths that motivate Christian nationalists. These are the stories that energize its preachers, January 6th rioters, and Trump-worshipping election truthers. A central idea between all these disparate groups is that just as they firmly believe that their Christian God cares deeply about the future of the U.S., they also think that there's some special history to the founding of the United States. Their myth of America is an immigrant's fantasy about a promised land that was founded only through their God's special favor. Their new promised land, they believe, has ever since been under attack from both secular and satanic enemies and requires vigilant defense. Interviewed in New York Magazine about their recent book, The Flag and the Cross, sociologists Philip Gorski and Samuel Perry answer a question about the botched version of American history that Christian nationalists tell each other. You write in the book that the Christian nationalists often have a completely incorrect understanding of American history. Can you talk about what myths tend to be attracted to them and why? Philip Gorski replies that, Well, because it puts people like them at the center of the American story, and it puts the American story at the center of the cosmic drama. White Christians like us are the real Americans, and America is the exceptional nation the chosen nation that is playing a special role in the battle between good and evil, the end times, etc. So who doesn't want to be at the center of the cosmic drama? It's why we get drawn into thriller novels or the Harry Potter books, right? Because it's the same sense of, you know, there's all this secret stuff that's actually going on, and there are a few people who know, and they are going to defend freedom or the good and fight against evil. So of course the story is attractive. And I guess the one other thing I would add to this is that if you think in terms of this narrative, if you're a white Christian, it doesn't matter when you showed up in the United States. You have a kind of a birthright. You belong. You were always here, in a sense. People like you were always here. You're part of the founding group. I always find this kind of ironic when you think about the folks who get sort of exercised about discussions of race and reject the 1619 Project. Why do they get so exercised about all this? in part because it threatens their central place in the story and makes clear that in some sense, you're really talking about who got here first. It's actually the descendants of enslaved Africans. It's not immigrants from Western or Central Europe who showed up here in 1870 or 1910. You know, right there, Sean, he's he's talking about this idea of when people showed up. You've, you've heard of people saying, like, I'm mm-hmm. a 16th Cherokee or I'm 32nd Cherokee or something like that. Always, always fucking white people, right? But that actually... Three-fifths. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's always I'm some fucking bizarre Cherokee. number that actually doesn't quite fucking like match Elizabeth up. Like Elizabeth Warren. But, oh, that's embarrassing as fuck. So that, that comes, that actually does come from the uh, late 19th century. We had this idea of the America First movement. Uh, of course, with the KKK marching down the streets and all the rest of it. But part of it was that white people wanted to have some kind of a claim to being here first. And they wanted to have a a, a sort of a sense of uh, uh, a claim to, to legitimacy 
for for being considered as native as as not native americans as an indig- indigenous but native to america it was part of the it was part uh-huh. of the whole nativist ideology and politics that's really where that shit came from where people would say would they would, they would make this up they would say oh i'm i'm such and such uh Cherokee. And we're left with now is the daughters of the american revolution <laughs> yeah <laughs> samuel perry then adds I would say is a flip side component to Phil's analysis here, which is spot on, that there is this huge identity based motivation to believe these myths about America's past that are factually incorrect oftentimes. Another part of this is that, frankly, a lot of people in these communities are socialized into believing it because there is an entire Christian nationalism industrial complex that is built to continue to perpetuate those myths. I'm looking on my shelves over here, and I've got five different Bibles that carry various names like the Founder's Bible, the Patriot's Bible. Actually, there's several Patriot Bibles. There's one for teenagers and one for women. And there's all of these books and all of these video series and programs that are put out by wall builders or focus on the family or various institutions. The goal of these media resources is to either provide religious leaders with that kind of ammunition or to provide religious consumers, people in the pews, with information about America's Christian past that may or may not be factually correct. But it is designed, as Phil was talking about, to center white Christian Americans within that story and to tell them that this nation was founded on Christian values for Christian people. This is the narrative that this nation can only work if Christianity is the foundation, or biblical principles or Christian values, and of course, they get to decide what that means. So there's both an identity-based kind of driver there, and a very real source of information that continues to be put front and center in congregations week in and week out. In the interview, Samuel Perry mentions the wall builders and the cottage industry of authors and publishers dedicated to creating and promoting the Christian nationalist beliefs that the United States was founded by evangelical Christians and that Christians should control its government. Wallbuilders also strongly promotes the belief that despite all the language in the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution regarding the separation of church and state, that its government and organizing principles are actually all originally based on biblical teachings. One of the most infectious people spreading bad takes on American history is Christian pseudo-historian and Wall Builders founder David Barton. Wall Builders describes itself as an organization dedicated to presenting America's forgotten history and heroes with an emphasis on the moral, religious, and constitutional foundation on which America was built, a foundation which, in recent years, has been seriously attacked and undermined. In accord with what was so accurately stated by George Washington, we believe that the propitious smiles of heaven. (laughs) (laughs) We actually rehearsed this and he can't do it. The propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation which disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself has ordained. (laughs) That's what George Washington sounds like. I heard it. I, I, I've heard I, him speak. I heard, I, yeah, I heard him speak yeah. on, uh, on, on the History Channel. <laughs> you know, and, and of course, it's, it should be obvious by this point, the foundational principle 
that's being talked about here is that the real history of America that's been forgotten always involves all these things that white people did. David Barton does go out of his way to bring up historical black Americans and their roles as inspiration for the founding fathers or in crafting legal rulings. But when it comes to that spark, that initial sort of drive to found this nation, there is no one else but the white people. It is very clear when we look at the founding document that there are some very lofty ideas, but they apply to landowning white well, and that's Men. part of the Jefferson Lies thing, you know, the the Barton's book, where he's he's saying that, you know, all this Sally Hemings stuff, all this Jefferson's a slave owner stuff, like this has all been distorted and that that's not actually what happened. He was actually firmly against slavery. Except he still had slaves. Barton is a very flexible man. He can he can bend himself <laughs> into many different shapes. Fuck, he said he should start teaching yoga with that flexibility. It's Rick and Morty. Fold yourself 12 times, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Elsewhere on the Wall Builders website, they explain the origin of their name. I'd assume that it had something to do with maintaining strong borders. And until I looked into it, I didn't realize how long ago he founded the Wall Builders. It just seems like it's a total coincidence that they also happen to hate immigrants coming in from the South. The thing about Christian nationalism is that it is taking all of the dominant institutions, whether we're talking about the religious institutions or we're talking about the political institutions or the economic institutions, whatever the, the dominant institutions happen to be, it's taking them to their furthest extreme and fusing them together. We're talking about theocracy. Anything that is the dominant thing, whether it's the form of sexuality or its religion, each of these things that happens to be the dominant thing, they take it to its furthest extreme and pour it into a singular fusion, a, a, a singular ideology that is exacerbated and simplified. So when we're looking at the the notion of wall builders, I mean, we just as you were pointing out, I I, I too assumed that they were talking about the borders. But when we look at what is a state, a state is a monopoly on violence. And one of the key features of a state is that it is within the territory that it claims as its own. Hence, borders are a foundational element of a state as an institution. So when we're talking about this, this being a perfectly fitting name for it, well, of course it is. Of course, these people would be xenophobic because part of believing in this dominant institution of the state is believing in borders, is believing in them, the outsiders, the foreigners. Well, and a difference between are, the people on one side of that wall and the people on the other side of that wall. Exactly. You know, whoever's inside the border is OK and whoever's outside is, a, is potentially a problem or mo even most likely a problem. Absolutely. And we can even look at the homogeneity that they value. This idea of, mm -hmm. of having just the right culture and just the right people who look just the right way and say just the right things and dress the right way and all the rest of it. But when we look at the idea of wall builders, 
I don't think that there could be a more perfect name, not just in the context of the the biblical reference and not just in the sense of the state and one of the foundational principles that makes the state what it is as an institution, but also that it is about having people on the outside and people on the inside, the in-group well, and we the out We can see from the description of where they got their name and what their inspiration was that that's exactly what they're talking about. This is the, the wall builders story about where the name came from. In the old Testament book of Nehemiah, God damn it. Jeremiah, we rehearsed this. We like three times. I said that, hold on. We rehearsed it. So Nehemiah. Nehemiah. <laughs> All right. I got it. 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 In the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, the nation of Israel rallied together in a grassroots movement to help rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and thus restore stability, safety, and a promising future to that great city. We have chosen this historical concept of rebuilding the walls to represent allegorically the call for citizen involvement in rebuilding our nation's foundations. As Psalm 11.3 reminds us, if the foundations be destroyed, what shall the righteous do? If the foundations are fucking, rocking. Like, don't come a knocking. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck does that, that, what does 11.3 have to do with anything here? Is it just me? I mean, like, I, I feel like it's a total fucking non sequitur. Not that I'm trying to impose logic or rationality on these people. You know, a lot of this, a lot of of what I've seen from, you know, listening to these guys, and they're honestly almost always guys, that reference passages in the Bible. Once you actually look at that passage in the Bible, then you really get confused because what they said and then and the 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 long diatribe that comes after them referencing, you know, whatever, Corinthians something, something. And then what's actually in that passage seem to have almost nothing to do with each other. So what I'm finding is that there is this dense amount of interpretation that has been going on for quite a long time of biblical passages and what they, what they mean and how they should be read and how they should be explained to people. And so when somebody's talking about, you know, such and such passage in the Bible, they're not necessarily talking about this is what I'm reading and this is what I think it means. They're referencing decades of interpretation of that passage. And so, like, we, we heard this from Hank Cunneman when he was talking, and he was referencing passage in the Bible to support his his positions or the Lord's positions, he says. <laughs> thus saith yeah thus saith hank cunneman and it didn't seem to have any any connection whatsoever to what he was actually talking about that all of that anointing and everything like that that's what makes us special because of this anointing and i think it's because they they sort of they they bring new definition to reading between the lines of these things and then and in the process they spread these lines so far apart and insert so much new material to it that when somebody reads something like that, it's almost like that's coded language. That this line in you know Psalm eleven three, if the foundations be destroyed, what shall the righteous do? Then that's almost like a code. 
there's probably so much to that that has been added over the decade, over the last decades and longer. It depends on how far back you go. People have been talking about that for a very long time, interpreting it in different ways. They've inserted so much other meaning in there that they're referring to everybody else who's ever interpreted it. That's my that's my take on what's going on here and why there seems to be such a huge mismatch between the way that something reads if you just, you know, open it up and read it or you know, go to some Bible website and look up a verse like I do and what and then with the way somebody seems to be describing it. Yeah, it just seems that that's the only thing that makes any sense. I know I'm the millionth person to say this. Talking about the idea of these scriptures being like a game of telephone. Uh, it is written down and and then translated into another language over and over again. But even within the language of English, one of the difficulties that we have is that this is written in a a way of speaking that is so far removed from present day English that it doesn't even fucking make sense. So many of the passages, even when they are interpreted are often interpreted in a way that itself is just whatever the person wanted to say and has very little relationship probably to yeah, what the passage the has to say from the old is from the old testament this was written in hebrew who knows when because it is such a foreign way of speaking even when it's in english and it's so far removed from the way that we speak today i think that it basically becomes a Rorschach religion, where you can read into it whatever you, you want you to read that, into it. You called Johnny Depp and Amber Heard a Rorschach relationship. Oh, I did. I did. I absolutely did do that. That's right. You need some new analogies. Well, hey, you know what? Uh, this is this is an ink blot podcast. So just read into it whatever <laughs> whatever you want. But it really is because it's it's so. It's so far removed from yeah. common language that you can just say it means whatever the fuck you want it to mean. I think that's really the that's that's really a huge issue that even if you're not being deliberately deceitful, it is a really hard thing to avoid reading yourself into whatever it is that you're that you're reading because everybody's going to interpret this subjectively and the more archaic the language and the more removed it is from the 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 common language that we use that we're mostly familiar with the more it's going to be interpreted subjectively and even worse we have we have the difficulty of so many of the cultural references that are totally lost to us i, I think of shakespeare for example where he is discussing a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. He was referencing the Rose Theater next door. And between the two theaters, they were competing. They were rival theaters. Between the two theaters, there was a, a like a like some kind of a sewage canal or something like that. And the and the wind typically blew towards the the Rose Theater. And so when he was saying a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet, he was saying that other theater that's our competing theater smells like shit <laughs> because there's all this sewage. It was, it was a reference, but that is lost in the sands of time, except for people who know that little bit of trivia at the time, people would have totally picked that joke up. They would totally know what that joke is all about. But now you, you have to 
learn mm-hmm. about the joke to get the joke. And it's all these little references to to uh, 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 the context in the time and the place of the cultures that mm-hmm. are totally lost. I mean, I, I, can, I, I can't hardly imagine all the things that we say today that are the various idioms that are totally lost in 100 years. People would have no idea what we're talking about. Imagine 2,000 years. Well, 1,700, plus or minus. David Barton has enjoyed the love of the evangelical community for decades. He's been endorsed by former Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich, former U.S. Representative Michelle Bachman, and Matt Crouch, the president of the Trinity Broadcasting Network. Glenn Beck once called him, quote, the most important man in America right now. Back in 2011, at the Rediscovering God in America conference, this is how Mike Huckabee, former Arkansas governor, Fox News pundit, and father of Trump's press secretary, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, referred to David Barton. Great black robe regiment guy. I mean, he's a preacher. He's now involved in politics. He's led all this stuff. He has that mentality of take the Bible and apply it to every aspect of the culture. But it's a real honor to be able to introduce Mike Huckabee. Come on, go. Thanks, brother. And you got a tie on, brother. That's scary. Thank you very much, David. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. I realize that you stood up because you needed the exercise. I understand that. It's okay. I want to say thanks to David Barton. I uh, am only disappointed that I have to follow him. It is not an enviable position on the program to follow David Barton because I don't know of anyone in America who is a more effective communicator. And I just wish that every single young person in America would be able to be under his tutelage and understand something about who we really are as a nation. Uh, I, I almost wish that there would be like a simultaneous telecast and all Americans would be forced, forced at gunpoint no less, to listen to every David Barton message and I think our country would be better for it. I wish it happened. He says that tongue-in-cheek like he's joking. I really don't think he is either. I, I, I don't think we should be fooled by Huckabee's folksy demeanor at all. Yeah, he chuckled a little bit. People in the got a little bit of a laugh out in the audience. But then he says, I really mean it. And it's definitely, it's clear from the look on his face, too, that he's absolutely serious. And then, and you know, and after hearing the the applause in the room, it seems like I guess everybody at that event is cool with Huckabee's Christian reeducation camps. But if it were communist reeducation no, camps, no, this, this is more like real clockwork problem. orange style. They just want to put people in front of the television with their eyes forced open, <laughs> <laughs> listening to to round the clock David Barton. <laughs> Barton, who calls himself America's, quote, premier historian. That, that's literally how he gets introduced on his podcast. It's not him saying those words. It's somebody else announcing him. But it's his podcast. If he wasn't comfortable with, with, that, with, with that title, then he could get him to change it. Barton has taken as his mission to correct the lies about the founding of America. On a good day, Barton claims that we've all simply forgotten that the framers of the U.S. Constitution were devout evangelical Christians, and that they intended for all of us to live by Christian-inspired laws. But in darker moments, Barton has claimed that it's no accident that we've lost our true path, 
In fact, he said that our Christian heritage has been deliberately removed from our histories as part of a conspiracy plotted and carried out by secular liberal scholars. As I was writing that, and I came across this position a few times in uh, different articles that I read, every time I hear the, the term secular liberals, I hear some angry preacher yelling about godless communists. And I really think that these more measured voices, <laughs> David Barton is a very measured voice. He is not Greg Locke. He's not shooting from the hip. Right. He's not out there shouting. He's not out there jumping around. There's no, there's no voices or, you know, there's no voices getting raised. Everything is very measured. When he complains about secular liberals, though, it is in exactly the same sort of way that somebody like Pastor Locke screams about godless communists. Absolutely. Or baby-killing demons. conflation of all these things that are not reactionary ideology is is what we see from not just these i i find it kind of funny that liberals often in terms of the rhetoric that i that i that i see in in uh, uh popular media as much as the conservatives as much as the other more reactionary elements all don't know what communism is or socialism it, it, the, the Bernie Sanders is a socialist, communist, Marxist, neo something plot, and he's he's basically just fucking FDR in 2022. People were thought Obama was a communist. If Are only he was, me? for fuck's sake. <laughs> I mean, that guy was such a neoliberal shill for big business. Yeah, I, but but he got accused of communism. They're accusing Joe Biden of collaborating with China, as if China is even communist anymore. As if it... That's an authoritarian, like, capitalist regime at this point. I, I don't have to say it, but I'm gonna say it anyways. Communism, little c, is stateless, classless society. You can't have a communist state. Period. Full <laughs> Tell stop. Tell <it> McCarthy. <laughs> But the, the, the people who relegate against this shit so much, socialism and communism and yada, 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 are the ones who understand it the least. And it, it doesn't help anything that uh, we have tankies out there calling themselves socialists and communists. And they're really just would-be Stalinists. Yeah. It's just fucking state capitalism. That's what all these countries are. This is from David Barton's presentation. Our godly heritage. So there is no secular safe zone in the Bible. I mean, God's involved with everything. And for us to give the notion that, well, take God wherever you go, but this is a secular arena and you don't bring God in this arena. No, no, no. God doesn't stay out of any arena. God's in every aspect of life. But somehow we've got this compartmentalization in our mind. Here's a sermon on religion, patriotism, the constituents of a good soldier. This was a 1755 deployment sermon. By the way, Matt point out, I think most Christians in America today are praying for revival. I chose these sermons because every one of these sermons came out of either the First Great Awakening or the Second Great Awakening. These are all revival sermons. What revival does is show you how to apply the Word of God in a very practical manner, which changes the culture as a result. He is such a boring speaker. Jesus Christ, I was falling asleep in just that few Yeah, he's so bad. Seconds. He's so bad. 
and he's wildly popular in, in his in his crowd. If you haven't seen the movie Ten Commandments, you need to see it. So, so God sends Moses to deliver them, and then there's the deliverance, the, the ten plagues, the, the ten miracles, and then not only is there ten miracles, God ends up wiping out the Egyptians so they have no opposition. He then gives them the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire to lead them to where he wants them to go, and he gets them out of that mountain, which is really significant because at this point in time, they're now out at the mountain. And think what we have here. We have a group of people who have been slaves for 400 years. They think like slaves. They act like slaves. Their mentality is a slave mentality. And God has in his mouth and says, okay, this is really good. Nobody's chasing you. And you don't have a clue where you're going. I have your full attention. And while I've got your attention, here's how it's going to be. And he delivered to them 613 laws there at the mountain. What he what he's talking about here with this, you know, this group of people and this imaginary story from the Bible that, you know, they have all these slaves and they just witness all these miracles and they don't know how to think for themselves. They don't have any any aim and all they all they know how to do is is want to escape, but they don't know what they're going to do once they escape. They don't have any experience living their lives. And so he's saying this is a good thing that. Now, you know, you have this this vacancy in your agenda and God's just going to plug himself right into it. And that's, I think, the worst thing that I could possibly imagine. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a, he, what he's describing is a zombie or a robot. Yeah. You're, there's no volition. There's no self-determination. There's nothing. I mean, most of that, I mean, free will isn't real anyway, but that, that sense of free will is real. And you don't have any of that when you have somebody so broken down the way that he's just described this. They may as well be toasters. But that to him, that's a good thing. That means they're ready to receive the message of God. And what is the message? Rules. Lots and lots of rules. Hundreds of rules. He flashes a, a slide up on the screen that says 613, as in the number of laws that God is handing down to them about taxes, about debt, the economy, welfare, healthcare, education, immigration, war and military, foreign relations, environment, and criminal justice. So here we are sailing into the beginning of the Iron Age, and we're, we're supposed to believe from David Parton that, we sh that the, the greatest wisdom this world has ever known <laughs> was there in the desert in Egypt. The 613 laws covered every conceivable topic you can think of. That's why we preached about so many things back in those days, oh, because boy. the Bible covered everything that any nation, state, city, anybody else would need to know. And so we looked at the Bible not as just a spiritual book, but we looked at it as a very practical book on living. This is why John Adams at the time said, our pulpits have thundered. I mean, literally it had. He looked, that's why he looked at the preachers and said, these are the guys that caused America to be an independent nation because they showed us how to apply the Word of God to everything that came up, and that's what they tried to do. They weren't perfect. None of us are. They made lots of mistakes, but they made less mistakes than most of the other nations in the world. They tried to get those principles right, and they had the right content coming at them so many occasions. This is all good news. <laughs> he goes on to talk about how nine, only 9% 9 of Christians read the Bible daily. I think the more we can bring that number down, the better. And which Bible? There's only one. 
Fucking heathen. So this is the problem we face. Now, the change really occurred. That what happened was the way we looked at the Great Commission. Uh, the Great Commission, you remember, is in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, where Jesus told the, the apostles, the disciples, he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. So what happened was in the 60s, 1960s, we took the Great Commission and we turned it into an evangelism mandate. In other words, God wants you saved, I'm going to get you saved. And that's not bad. I mean, that we know all the way back to Proverbs 10, 28, that he that wins souls is wise. We're supposed to be bringing people to the Lord. But that's not what the Great Commission is about. He said, go make disciples of all people. It's about discipleship, not evangelism. Not that evangelism is bad, but it is about discipleship. And that's the key thing. He said, you teach them everything I've taught you. Now, let me give you an example. If we were into teaching people the teachings of Jesus, it'd be a whole lot more than just how to get saved. Uh, for example, if I take this everything, let me, let me just remind you of some of the teachings of Jesus. Let's start right up top with Matthew 19, no-fault divorce. Jesus gave 15 verses on how bad no-fault divorce was. <laughs> granted, our nation has had no-fault divorce since 1968. That's the first no-fault divorce law passed in America. Prior to 1968, if you wanted a divorce, particularly back in the founding era, you had to get an act of the legislature to dissolve your marriage. You had to get the legislature to say, okay, we'll let you guys be divorced. And it had to be for biblical reasons. There's about half a dozen causes biblically. Jesus put it right in the face of his disciples. See, people don't talk about it today because we might offend somebody because there's a lot of divorce in the church today. As a matter of fact, 87% of Americans who have gotten divorced got divorced after they made a commitment to Christ, which is just a phenomenal statistic. Born-again Christians have a higher divorce rate in America than atheists do, than non-born-again non Christians. Born-again Christians have the highest divorce rate in the United States today, and 87% of those born-again Christians got divorced after they became born again. Can he hear the words that are coming out of his own mouth? I, yeah, it, it, there is just no reflection on what he's talking about. I'm going to make a broader comment for a second about David Barton. This has been the issue that I've had with him the entire time. As soon as I started listening to his material and reading some of the things that he's written, I kept seeing this over and over again. This is the thing that really makes him a terribly shitty scholar. It's not that he, had, he doesn't know how to research or he doesn't take the time or do the work. He does all those things. I think he knows how to research just fine. I think he does the work just fine. But he starts off with a conclusion and then just hunts out the evidence to support it. And he ignores everything else. And I think that's why he can't hear himself right here in this presentation when he's talking about evangelicals having a much higher divorce rate than, than atheists. And I think he just means like basically everybody who isn't an evangelical. He also he goes on to say that most of them are getting divorced after they get saved. <laughs> and... But he doesn't hear, he doesn't see any of these, these lines, you know, crossing over. He doesn't see the dots getting connected at all when he's talking about these things. Even if this was correlative data, it's fucking against his whole goddamn point. Yeah, it is. And he's it, making it as if it's the case. I know. It's, it's exactly the opposite of the case. <laughs> the next thing Barton is talking about is the story about the guys that are given some money by their, I think he refers to them, servants and their master. 
and this this is I love the euphemism here because every version of this passage that I looked up in different Bibles, it always calls them slaves, not servants. But Barton doesn't like to talk about slavery in the Bible. He's going to talk about servants. So even back then, he's telling the disciples, no, 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 you're not thinking right about this. So Jesus has a long teaching, and it was a hard teaching even for his disciples. His disciples, Peter complained about it. He said, Lord, this is a hard teaching. Said, Can't help it. That's the way God did it. So that's part of discipleship is teaching him everything that he taught us. Remember other things that he taught. For example, in Luke 19, rewarding prophet makers. If you remember that, Luke 19, you had the, the parable where he called the servants together and gave each one a mina. Mina is defined as a specific amount of money. And that day, compared to today, it's worth about $10,000 a day. He said, you guys take this and you invest it and I'll check with you when I get back. And so later when he comes back, he said, what you do with that $10,000 I gave you, that mina I gave you? First guy said, I've known you. You are a hard guy. And you just don't seem to be very fair. And so I didn't do anything with it. And he looked at him and said, you didn't even put it in the bank to make interest on it in the bank? I didn't do anything. Okay, we'll come back to you later. What'd you do with it? Well, I took the 10 and I made 50. I made five times as much. I got 50,000 here for you. He said, well done, good and faithful servant. I'll make you rule over five cities. By the way, not many Christians consider that a reward for being faithful is being put in civil government. Notice what Jesus said. You've been really good with what I gave you. I'm going to put you in civil government. You can be rulers over five cities. The next guy, he said, what'd you do? Well, I made 10 times as much. Great, I'm going to make you a ruler over 10 cities. The more faithful you are to what God wants, the more you need to be in leadership in the civil arena. That's not the way we think. That's what he's talking about. But then he comes back and says, now, he said, you guys go take away from the guy who, who didn't do anything with his and give it to the guy who had 10. And they go, whoa, Jesus. You can't do that. I mean, the guy's already got 10. And they're thinking more like socialist, which is 10 and 5. That's 15. 1 is 16 divided by 3. Everybody should get 5. And that's kind of the thinking. Don't give it to the one who's got 10. He's got too much. And Jesus says, no, to him who has will be given. To him who has not will be taken away even that which he has. If you can't be productive, I'm not going to reward you. The more productive you are, the more I'm going to reward you. That is not socialism. That is free market capitalism. And this deal about saying, I'm going to reward you. See, the capital gains tax says the more profit you make, the more we're going to take away from you. If you're a business and make profit, we're going to hit you harder. <laughs> Jesus says, if you make profit, I'm going to keep pouring it to you. I'm going to take from the guy who's not profitable. See, Jesus doesn't reward unprofitable. He rewards the profitable. He keeps it going. He doesn't penalize them. So that's our capital gains tax. That whole tax system is built on penalizing those who are productive. That's not the way it should go. You also have what Jesus did in Matthew 20, opposition to minimum wage. Matthew 20, particularly verse 15, where he says, it's not my money, mine to do with it, I please. It is not. You will pay this guy 15 an hour and this one. What? I, I own multiple businesses and I can't even decide whether my employees are salaried or not. You heard it from straight. Jesus was a capitalist, even though capitalism emerged over a millennia later. There's so many things to try to keep in order just for the sake of the show. I don't want to just go everywhere with this, but I really feel like going everywhere with this. So I went ahead and played that entire clip <laughs> instead of relating it uh, the way that I planned on it. And I'm glad that I did because in that story, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump around now and then come back up later on. In that story, yeah. you know, a a after Barton talks about 
why Jesus wants to ban divorce. He's, he, tell, he tells the story about the, the three guys, but the way that he tells that story is really confusing. He very much makes it sound like Jesus is the one that gave the guys the money. <laughs> because he said, Jesus says, I'm not going to reward people who aren't profitable. But in the story that actually comes out of the Bible, it's Jesus telling a story about a guy. And that that guy is the one that says, is the one that gives his his slaves because it doesn't say servants that gives his slaves some money to to invest while he's going to be away on at the capital and basically he's going to get a promotion so that he can get put in charge of more things and he's such a terrible guy that they actually send some like they send an envoy with a message after him to deliver to the royal court that they should never give that guy any power because he's terrible. <laughs> Jules is going to love this because now I'm the one playing wet-wired Bible scholar. And he's going to read from Luke 19, 12 through 27. So he said, A nobleman went to a distant region to receive royal power for himself and then return. So the so he said is, this is Luke talking about Jesus was telling us a story. Yeah, so it's not it's not Jesus who's handing out ducats to these guys. He summoned ten of his slaves and slaves, by the way, slaves, not servants, slaves. He summoned ten of his slaves and gave them ten pounds and said to them, "Do business with these until I come back." But the citizens of his country hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, "We do not want this man to rule over us." When he returned, having received royal power. He ordered these slaves to whom he had given the money to be summoned so that he might find out what they had gained by doing business. The first came forward and said, Lord, your pound has made ten more pounds. He said to him, well done, good slave. <laughs> because... <laughs> like he's a fucking uh, golden retriever. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small thing, take charge of ten cities. Then the second came, saying, Lord, your pound has made five pounds. He said to him, And you, rule over five cities. Then the other came, saying, Lord, here's your pound. I wrapped it up in a piece of cloth, for I was afraid of you, because you are a harsh man. You take what you did not deposit, and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked slave. You knew, did you, that I was a harsh man? taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money into the bank? Then when I returned, I could have collected it with interest. He said to the bystanders, Take the pound from him and give it to one who has ten pounds. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten pounds. I tell you, to all those who have, more will be given. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to rule over them, bring them here and slaughter them in my presence. Jesus. That is a completely different fucking story than the one that Barton told. I'm, re I'm reading into this story something that sounds kind of like trading places with Eddie Murphy. <laughs> and what did you do with your pound? <laughs> Th that's a totally different story than the one that Barton was describing. This is what I mean, is that... It is all, everything is, is sort of 
just a little a little massaged or a little twisted just to suit whatever narrative he has. He has a worldview and he just finds the stuff to support it, even if it doesn't support it. He'll read it a little bit differently until it does. They have nothing to do with what they're saying. They just pick a passage and roll with it and interpret it however they need. Barton wraps up his Bible stories and tells us that God is also against minimum wage and generally all labor laws and worker protections, and that the Bible is the original source for all the laws regarding due process found in the federal legal code. I looked up the due process bit on congress.gov, and the only inspiration referred to for that area of U.S. law was the Magna Carta, which means that my high school education was totally accurate. Because I remember that from, I don't know, 10th grade, something like that. Yeah, There is absolutely nothing about the Bible. Nobody disputes the fact that among the people who were contributing to the U.S. Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, and among those people, obviously some of them were going to be Christians. There's nobody disputing that Christians were involved in some way in these things. That doesn't mean that they were the primary inspiration for it, or that the Bible was the primary inspiration for these things. This is a rehashing of the same argument that a lot of people will make when they try to force the Bible into U.S. law or criticize people for not following the indications of God that are found in the Bible. Basically that without these rules, we would all just be murderous savages all the time. We can't possibly ever accomplish anything. We can never create anything or devise anything write anything, construct a a government or a social structure, unless God is somehow steering that boat. It's a totally Hobbesian philosophy. Hobbesian in the respect that left to their own devices, people without an authority to come in and dominate will turn into total chaos and they need some sort of intervention such as the state. And in this context, it's not just the state. It's God as the state. Otherwise, we we would just devolve into murderous beasts. Except he's doing it a little bit differently. He's saying we have really great things in this country, and the only way we could have possibly gotten them is because of God's favor. Because we were following the rules of God, and we were able to, we, we, we basically just plucked it right out of the Bible and put it out into the country. It's not just piggy in the conch shell here with this guy he's he's really emphasizing the he's really emphasizing the protestant ethic that where there's this calvinist idea that we we live to work jules he made a biblical argument against the capital gains tax (laughs) (laughs) something else that i've noticed after watching nearly a dozen david barton presentations is that he regularly cites George Orwell. He really likes Orwell. And I should rephrase that. He likes one quote from George Orwell. And it's the one that very commonly gets quoted from 1984. Who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. He will have a slide dedicated to just this quote. What Barton doesn't say is where that quote originates. Instead, he just puts it on the slide's and attributes it to just Orwell. He seems to have absolutely no idea that that book even exists, or what it's about, because that particular quote is one of the slogans 
of the totalitarian Stalinist regime that's in charge. He totally misses this. <laughs> it's so wild that he is referencing Orwell and specifically 1984, which was a critique of the Stalinists specifically. Orwell, Hemingway, a lot of the most famous authors that you know were fighting on the Republican side of the Spanish Civil War in 1936. They were, they were. That's how much Orwell hated totalitarian. He fucking hated them. They were, they were fighting. When I say the Republican side, I don't mean that as in, obviously, as in the American Republican Party. The Republican. Everybody listening to this knows that. Well, they might not, yeah. but the Republican side. Yeah, no, they do. They had Marxists. They had anarchists, specifically the CNTFAI. They had. Uh, liberals. They had everybody who didn't like Franco. They had everybody who were against the fascists, the Franco fascists. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, Franco won in part because preceding 1939, when the Allies were were forced into the war by treaties, when Poland was invaded, the Allies, the United States, or what would become the Allies, the United States, the United Kingdom, France, and so forth, were not interested in supporting the Republican government and the resistance against the fascist regime in this civil war of uh, under under uh, Francisco Franco. Crucially, the fascists from Italy and from Germany were absolutely supporting Franco. Those in favor of democracy in all of the different variations of, of democracy lost. There was fascism for decades in Spain, long after the Nazis lost World War II, long after Italy fell, long after we had an upside down Mussolini hanging in Italy. It is in Spain that Orwell is describing the totalitarian regime. He's talking about Russia, but he's also talking about specifically the Stalinists and what happens when you have this total propaganda machine. And this guy is citing the propaganda machine that Orwell is criticizing. Except Barton's too thick to realize that Orwell didn't like the people that were using that quote as their slogan. When we look into the world of David Barton, we see someone sitting at a crossroads of Christian nationalism, dominionism, and Christian reconstructionism. Each has a different emphasis and slightly varied goals. But the thread running through all these isms is the zealous ambition that Christians should embrace their heavenly mandate to rule over the United States. You open that door, floods are under the curse, tornadoes are under the curse, murderers, pedophiles, all of these things, all of that's under the curse. Abortion was a seed to it that has grown into a murderous, bloody crop yep. of child death. And it doesn't stop with abortion. It goes on, man, hey, all ages. Thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And whether that killing is through abortion or drugs or suicide or anything else, you open the door to killing. It's got a lot of different manifestations. But that's the problem. If you choose leaders who say, oh, I support killing, come, come, 
We've opened the door to all of no. it. You got the whole thing. When a nation does something bad, it gets judgment or it gets blessing right now on in the, the present. On the yes, spot. Sir. Which is why policies matter. Because if you take a bad policy, you get judged for it on the spot. If you take a good policy, you get blessed for it on the spot. David, storms and hurricanes and unimaginable murders and mass murders and all of that doesn't just Happen. It doesn't just happen. Uh, a door has been opened, and we have said, it no, we embrace a wicked policy. Okay, then I'll take my hand of protection off your nation, and whap, here comes storms like we've never seen before, and here comes floods. There's like we, a hand of protection. The, the climate stuff that we can't explain, all the hot times and all the cold times, and too much rain and not enough rain, and we're flooding over here, and we got droughts over here. And you know, back in the early America days, when something like that happened, First the early America days. A call for a national prayer day of repentance, humiliation, yes. fasting, and prayer. Yes. We have we have screwed up somewhere. We've got to get God's help to get blessings back on this nation. And they would humble themselves before God. And today we're saying, oh no, it, it's global warming. That's what. No, we opened a door that that lost God's protection over over our environment, and that's our choice. I guarantee that never that happened. That never happened. There was never a call for a national fasting to get God's favor. <laughs> yeah, the fasting that was happening was the poor pieces of shit who were such sinful people to be born poor. In, in case it was missed in that, this was Barton explaining that global climate change is somehow linked to the fact that abortion is legal in the United States. So that's like the Jerry Falwell line that lesbians cause the the twin towers to get to come down it's like it's like that church the god hates fags church where where they 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 march westboro baptist that's it they march out they go to these soldiers funerals and all these other events and protest because somehow this thing has to do with god judging america or something just show your math in this spirit, David Barton has made himself the go-to man aiming to give historical and legal ammunition to true believers. Barton started Wall Builders, originally called Specialty Research Associates, in the late 1980s to be the main vehicle to spread his message. He now uses Wall Builders to self-publish his books, produce Founding Fathers fanfic that he calls documentaries, and probably most importantly to Barton's mission, Christian-themed homeschooling material. So one of the things that Wall Builders is associated with is something called the Patriot Academy. The Patriot Academy, it's a sort of a roaming school uh, in that it doesn't have a, a dedicated physical location at this point. So they'll set up classes at different cities or things like that. I mean, think about it like a seminar weekend or something. Yeah. And they'll, they'll come into your church and put on a, put on a presentation and teach a class for a day or something like that. So they set up events at different locations. Each course features plenty of guests of different guest presenters. Michelle Bachman is, has been one. Kirk Cameron uh, is is part of the biblical citizenship course. Now these people don't show up to your events. You get them on video, but they are on video talking with David Barton. In fact, you don't get David Barton at your event either. <laughs> he's on video too. He's too he's too special. They also have a combo. Constitution Literacy and Firearms class called Constitutional Defense. <laughs> I'm going to put the link to watch this video. I'll put the link to the course in the in the show notes. I don't care if we drive some traffic to Patriot Academy. 
But for our purposes, Jules, I want us to watch this right now. I can't wait. So we train all the time to make sure that not only am I ready, my wife is ready, all of my kids have trained, and we want the same for your family. I challenge you to sign up for a constitutional defense course so that you can learn the intellectual ammunition to defend the Constitution, but then you can learn the physical training you need to be able to defend your family. Join us for constitutional defense. Complimentary. When you sign up for this course, it comes with your very own douchebag sunglasses that are featured. So you got your you're 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 jumping ahead though. (laughs) We we just we nobody nobody saw that video who's listening to the show, so we have to talk. Every single one of those guys had the douchebag cop sunglasses. But what was it? <laughs> I'm not including the video in the in the show because it is terrible podcasting material since it's mostly visual, but you can go to the link that'll be in the show notes and you can watch it yourself and you can see this fantasy that they've created or that they've really brought to life of the guy who comes home and gets to be the hero. That's the, that's the whole thing they're building on in this promo video for their constitution constitutional defense course. They they have this reenactment where he's driving down the road, he calls his wife and says he's on his way, and then as soon as she hangs up the phone and you see behind her this very menacing looking guy is snuck into the house with a ski mask, of course. He's he's wearing sunglasses at night for some reason. Then you see that there's another one, he's coming in, he's come in the other door, he also has sunglasses on. The guy gets home and somehow maybe somebody tried to escape or whatever, but there's a scuffle going on in full view of the open front door. The The husband can see everything and he goes in, he, he fumbles around, he, he removes a completely unsecured loaded firearm from his glove box. <laughs> like, that part is awesome. I love the gun safety involved in that right there. Then... He managed, he kind of staggers up the steps and opens the door and he's about ready to try to do something and he just gets shot. That's the sort of what not to do scenario. And then you get this training montage of the same guy going through a kill house and getting instructions on how to take corners and shoot muggers. And (laughs) it is so absolutely preposterous. But then when he tells the story about being able to take care of your family and protect your loved ones and all this stuff, they immediately cut to clips of people shooting fully auto Uzis (laughs) (laughs) in this constitutional defense shooting course. What that has to do with any scenario. I mean, are they really saying that you should have an Uzi in your car so that you can go and clear rooms in your house? Because they make it look like what you do with a hangover in Vegas. Also, weren't those totally done by the end of the 90s as a trope? No, absolutely not. (laughs) No, they are still around in any use. (laughs) But they love them. They're Israeli made and that's a a God-fearing country. That's the important part. 
What we haven't mentioned yet is that in a lot of ways, the jig is up for Barton's scholarly work. Unsurprisingly, secular scholars have long identified him as a fraud. His publisher even canceled the publication of Barton's book, The Jefferson Lies, after it was roundly bashed for numerous misquotes, some of which seemed to be entirely made up. Unfortunately, that wasn't until after Barton's book sat on the New York Times bestsellers list for a couple of weeks. And in a twist, even a few religious conservatives who actually know a little about history have been calling him out. Christian Bible and book publisher Thomas Nelson published Barton's book, The Jefferson Lies, exposing the myths you've always believed about Thomas Jefferson, and later had the books pulled from bookstores and stopped distribution for what it deemed factual issues with the text. Even though Thomas Nelson made the decision to bail out, the book has been offered on Barton's website, wallbuilders.com and on amazon.com. According to Warren Throckmorton, of Patheos. Even the Family Research Council recognized flaws in Barton's presentations and pulled his Capital Tour video from view. Also, Focus on the Family edited Barton's talks to remove two major historical errors. Focus on the Family edited him. Even they were like, ah, uh, <laughs> dude, could we fucking not, bro? <laughs> the Family Research Council. <laughs> The Berrien Call reported on the Barton brouhaha and quoted Casey Michael of TPM as saying, Richards emphasizes that he and the scholars he consulted about Barton largely agree with Barton's belief that Christian principles played a major role in America's founding. But Richards argues that Barton's books and videos are full of, embar of quote, embarrassing factual errors, suspiciously selective quotes, and highly misleading claims. That Richards is J. Richards, who is either currently or formerly Catholic, but either way, very active uh, religious commentator and works along the same lines as David Barton, but obviously thinks Barton's work is shit. <laughs> Varian Call concluded that, While we have no doubt that Christians and scriptural principles have influenced this nation, we need to stick to the facts because Barton's research has often been shown to be an error. He has become a favorite target of skeptics who point to his errors and use it as ammunition in attacking believers. In short, carelessness or lack of integrity is counterproductive to the cause we would advance. So it's not that they have a different agenda so much as they think Barton's fucking it up for the rest of them. <laughs> <laughs> He's fucking it up so bad, and he's so full of shit that even these very full of shit people are like, Shock, this doesn't look right. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wetwire. We have a few more installments for Fashboy Summer coming up. If you'd like to support the show, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash wetwire. We have some true believer memberships left. Until they're gone, for just $3 a month, you can listen to an extra episode or two every month and get access to our entire back catalog of premium episodes. You can also support us by sharing episodes on Twitter, Facebook, or wherever else. If you have a tip on a guest or an idea for a show, you can find us on Twitter at WetWiredPod. Until next time. See you later.
It's no secret that there has been a sharp decline in Americans' knowledge about how our constitutional republic works. In fact, you look at some of the surveys, most people can't name freedoms out of the First Amendment, can't even name the three branches of government. Folks, we've got to change this, and you don't want to fall into that category. So at Wall Builders, we've put together a high school government curriculum that actually works for all citizens to use. And if your high schooler uses it to get their credit, they'll also be prepared to get